Welcome to Be Customer-Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer-led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill Stakos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Be Customer Led. I'm your host, Bill Stakos. Another amazing guest for you all this week. Corey Walters is the founder and CEO of a really cool company, Here.co. And Corey's going to outline it for us and tell us what you know he's been up to and what he's doing with the company, as well as we're going to focus on just also product experience and why it's important to customer experience. And Corey, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bill. Great to meet you. Great to hang out today. Yeah. So put simply, here essentially turns vacation rentals into stocks that individuals can trade. So the idea is bringing really real estate investing and specifically short-term vacation rentals, think Airbnbs, to the masses. So essentially here just makes it easy for the average person to invest, which historically over the last couple of years, not only has it become incredibly hard to buy a house to live in, but it's become virtually impossible for the average person to become a real estate investor. So we think vacation rentals are probably one of the best asset classes to invest in in real estate. And we've made it incredibly easy for the average person to invest as little as $100 in an individual property. So it's, it's a very cool concept we've been working on for about two years. That's very cool. So low, low sort of entry point from an investment perspective. I mean, obviously you can buy a stock for a dollar, but like yeah. getting a share in a, in, in, a, in a vacation rental and getting sort of passive income coming from that on some level, exactly. never a bad thing. Yep, exactly. It's identical. The way that we structure the company and really the property ownership structure is very similar to if the two of us got together and partnered on a, a piece of real estate and you own 50% and I, don't, I own 50%. Yeah. The big difference is instead of there being two of us owning a property, there's hundreds of us that own that property and we split those dividends, so to speak, amongst ourselves. So rental income, appreciation, things like that. And the, the barriers are much lower than, you know, the yeah. two of us coming together on a $500,000 property. We'd both have to come out of pocket $50,000 a piece. And it would take some people years to save that amount of money. So full disclosure for our listeners, I have not bought anything on here.co yet, but I am looking at it because it's a really cool opportunity just to diversify my portfolio and get into something that's pretty neat. My wife and I have been trying to buy a beach house for 20 years. We still can't afford one, but at some point, <laughs> hey, I might as well own a piece of one. Hey, Corey, I'm really, so one, like we'll, we'll talk a little yeah. bit more about here.co as we kind of weave through the conversation, but I'm, I'm curious, just let's start, like, let's share your journey a little bit. Cause it's a pretty cool sure. one. Like you've been kind of like a serial entrepreneur almost since you were like in your teens on some level, right? Like, and how did that kind of lead you to here.co? So like, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. So I've been quietly starting companies or loudly starting companies since I was about 15 years old, since before I think I had a driver's license, I started a, a t-shirt company with a, a couple of friends from high school. We screen printed t-shirts and then we would sell them at high school. So it was like this surf brand with a cool awesome. logo. It was called Air Eat and we were really excited about it. And I think we made it a, a whole summer. We, I think we made about $500 in profit and we split it amongst ourselves and that was our summer fun money. And then the business was dead. That was it. So that was the, <laughs> that was the first foray into business. And there's been fits and starts. And, and really, I got into the, the tech industry. Right around 2019, I started uh, my last company called Homeworthy, which was a fully digital real estate brokerage that helped people living in rural America sell a house. So mm. think about people that live in, in small town America. Generally, if you look up real estate listings there for sale, the photos are kind of grainy. 
the technology is somewhat outdated in regards to deliverables. And in big city America, there's drone aerials, there's 3D yeah. scans, there's yeah. so much more that the, the buyer sees before purchasing at home. And we thought, well, what if we brought big city tools and technology to small town America? Could we help them sell their homes for more money and faster than their neighbors? So that was the launching thesis for Homeworthy. We launched in 2019. And then unfortunately, we walk into March of 2020, which everybody remembers where they was, where it's yeah. kind of my version of 9-11. It's like everybody remembered where you were when 9-11 happened. Most people remember what was happening when March 2020 hit. And in Homeworthy's case, it was kind of like our moment. We built a fully remote way to sell a house. Unfortunately, we just timed. We, we had the timing wrong. We were a startup that raised a little bit of money, but not a ton of money. We were mm -hmm. still very early. We'd only raised money from angel investors. We hadn't reached the point of raising money from venture capitalists. We weren't super well funded. So we unfortunately reached the end of our runway at probably the worst time possible, which is yeah. right when COVID-19 kicked off. So unfortunately, Homerly didn't survive the pandemic, but I refused to give up. So I refused to keep pushing, pushing the envelope and, and trying to create. And around the end of 2020, Airbnb was getting ready to go public. And there was a great amount of just like exposure, research, you name it, on the business model of Airbnb and really just short-term rentals in general. And there was this great research report from a, a company called Grandview Research. And about halfway through the report, they basically dissected the Airbnb S1. And in that report, it basically said by 2025, 75% of all travel and leisure spend in North America was going to be made by millennials or younger. So it was a pretty big determination. It basically meant in the next, at the time, it was like that next half decade, four or five years. Now we're almost two years away from that, that the majority of spend in hotels, travel, flights, et cetera, were going to be driven by young people. And I thought there's something hidden in here. There's something hidden inside this data. Like there's something that's not being, there's a story that's not being told. And I went down a bit of a rabbit hole and popped out the other side. And I thought, there's going to be a pretty big supply-demand imbalance of the demand for alternative accommodations when people travel in the current supply that exists, which is largely fragmented and somewhat inconsistent. So I don't know how often you stay in Airbnbs, but in many cases, it's somewhat of a coin toss of what you're going to walk into. Sometimes is, it is, yeah. Is the home going to be clean or the sheets going to be clean? Am I even going to be able to get access? I mean, sometimes you'll show up to the home and the door doesn't work or the lock doesn't work or there's, the smart lock isn't working or they haven't described yeah. how, how to get into the home. And I thought there's an opportunity here to really elevate that experience and, and really bring that to the masses. And that was the kernel of the idea for here, but it really became what it was about six months later when we discovered the fractional ownership model. So I listened to a lot of podcasts like yours and you, you name it. I listened to probably five podcasts a week. And there was this great podcast guest that was the founder of a company called Masterworks. And essentially what Masterworks does is they make high-end art and very valuable art like Picasso's and uh, Bankskis and things like that available to the masses through fractional ownership. So the idea is that you can invest in what the hyper wealthy invest in, which is like really high end rare art as a normal person. And I thought that is so cool. Like that is so cool. How do they do it? Because generally I thought that was illegal because you're basically selling securities to normal Americans. And so I thought there's got, there's, they got to be figuring, they must have cracked some kind of code and turns out they did. And they use this filing structure with the SEC called the Reg A+. Plus. Yeah. What the Reg A+, Plus does is it allows you to really securitize and fractionalize anything of value and make it easy for anybody to invest in that thing. They did it with artwork, and I thought, well, what if you pointed this at real estate? And what if you pointed it at this kind of idea that I was working on, on this idea of really creating an elevated experience for people and a consistent experience for people that want to travel to these great vacation destinations? And that was probably... The, the two big kind of kernels of the founding story for here. And then we went off to the races as quickly as possible. And 
We had no money, by the way. So my company failed. I was living on Washington State unemployment. Oh. We were broke, broke. And we bootstrapped the company and we threw up like a crappy website. And, like, and when I say we, it was me. So I say we because there is a we now, but at the time it was just me. We threw up this like crappy Squarespace website. And I think at the time we paid 5 to $10 a day in ads, whatever the Facebook minimum was. So yeah. I think Facebook's minimum ad spend, I think it's around 3 to $5 a day. Yeah. So we paid for ads and I said, I wonder if anybody's going to show up. And what was to our surprise is that people showed up pretty fast and I was very lucky to do this. It's not like this is premeditated, but I set up a Zapier zap, if you're familiar with Zapier, yeah, sure. which basically like automates tasks that connect yep. apps. And I set up a Zapier zap that when somebody signs up, it sends an automatic email from me that says, hey, my name's Corey. Thank you for joining here. I would love just to hang out for like five minutes over Zoom coffee. If you're interested, just hanging out. Like this isn't a sales pitch, just like hang out. And the big light bulb moment was the amount of people. At the time, I think it was like one out of four people that signed up was like, were eager to meet. They're like, yeah, I would love to talk. That's awesome. And that was our first experience. And just like, it, we started talking to customers at basically day zero, as, as soon as humanly possible. And what's ironic is my, the first two founding team members of here, we met that way. So like, so after I just started working on here, Caleb, our head of product, we met that way. And Eugene, our head of real estate now, he was actually head of property acquisition. Now he's head of real estate. They signed up as users. We just became buds from doing this and we ended up building the project together. So it was a really cool, it was a really cool way to, to, to start a company. I've never done anything like that. It was, it was, it was very special. I love that, man. That's such a great story. I, you, you totally just socially, social engineered like the founding of a company. Right? Sure. Like that's so yeah. cool. By luck. So I'm definitely not smart. So it was totally by luck. It was kind of like what felt right. And with Homeworthy, we were frightened of our customers. We were very afraid to talk to our customers. Mm. Homeowners, people that want to sell a home, it's a very emotional experience. Sure. It's very different than buying a home. Buying a home is exciting. Selling a home, you just don't know why somebody's selling it's a stressful. home. Stressful. So I was so afraid to talk to our customers because every time I talked to them, they'd be upset, they would be mad, and I, we just couldn't handle it. It was, it, was, it was a very, very hard process. It was very hard to, to make home sellers happy. And in here's case, it was just so refreshing. I was like, I got to fight this uphill in case I've got I've to conquer my fear of not talking to our customers. And, we, and now it's, it's part of our company culture. Like We have a team member that continues to do what I do every day. His name's Tucker. And he's the same thing I did at the very beginning, but he's continued to do that, which is when people sign up, he tries to reach out. He tries to get to know them. It's not a sell fest. We're not trying mm. to upsell them or sell them add-ons or anything like that. It's really just to understand who they are, what they want to see us build, and really just, just digesting those conversations. And now Tucker's become almost the, the voice of our customer. So whenever we have meetings, I'll ask him his opinion, even if it has nothing to do with mm -hmm. what he's experienced in, mm -hmm. because he's this weird, almost like, like the, this in like scary movies, they've got like the, uh, the person that sits around the table that like conjures the spirit <laughs> and they, <laughs> the spirits speak through the person. The customer whisperer. Yeah. Tucker is that person. But how um, do you guys do that? Like, so how do you yeah. do that in practice? Like, is he joining like you and the founders, like, do you guys have like a regular call with, with him and you guys are talking about sort of like, mm -hmm. what are you hearing? Does he, does he kind of summarize like weekly, like, here's what I'm hearing? Like, how does that manifest from the company? It's hard to quantify, but the way that I see it is if he's, a, he's a, if he's emotionally charged or driven by an opinion, it comes from that, mm -hmm. from those conversations. And the reason why I say that is because when we first started at here, we were highly combative in a good way, in a positive way with each other around opinions and things like that. And, and in many cases, it was me being 
Tucker. Like it was me saying, mm-hmm. we talked to these customers. I talked to these customers. I know they don't want this. I've talked to 50 people in the last four days. I know they don't want this. Why are we building this? And I think the biggest takeaway, and when I meet other founders, specifically founders at the early, early, early stage, it's talk to them as soon as you, and it's actually, there's, it's never too late to start. Mm-hmm. Like it's never too late to start talking to them, but you have to build it into your company. And you basically have to have somebody that it's almost like if you can invite a customer into your, if you can invite a customer into your, your team meetings or your weekly mm-hmm. town hall meetings, like that's the equivalent of, of having somebody on your team that does that. Cause you want to hear their opinions. Like you want to hear, yeah. cause you, you have these, you have these internal drivers and these things that you're confident about or passionate about or things that you want to see in the world. But at the end of the day, you're building it for somebody that wants to either buy it or use it. So you have to know if they want it. Uh, And I don't believe in building things that people don't want. There are so many companies out there, Corey, that don't bring the customer into their development process, create user stories, personas, et cetera, through what they're learning. Can you describe maybe a little bit of your development process, your product development process? And it sounds like you're bringing that feedback into, and and whether you're doing like an agile, you're doing sprints and all that or not is, is irrelevant, but like, can you talk a little bit about your product development process and then how you're bringing sort of what you're learning about the customer into that process? Yeah, so I would say version one of this was what I just explained to you, which is really just these constant conversations yeah. and, and really just trying to digest an ongoing consensus among the, the folks you're talking to. Now we've become more quantitative in regards to keeping track of that. So we survey, we survey two groups of people. So we survey what we call users. So users are people that sign up but haven't made an investment yet. So we survey them and we give them the same exact survey that we survey people that have invested. And we compare and contrast that data. And we look at things like, I mean, the, the standard stuff, what are the type of features you're looking for, yeah. et cetera. But we also ask other things around like, what is an ideal place in America for you to invest in or various other questions like that. And we constantly try to measure that. We're constantly trying to measure that and identify that and see that. Because again, it's like at the early stage, if you run off and build the wrong thing, you kill a company. Like it's very easy when you're a late stage company or public, a publicly traded company, you can build a, a feature or you can build a, even a team. And it's not that big of a deal if it's not successful. But it's incredibly important to just, I mean, it's like Paul Graham from Y Combinator talks about this a lot, which is like, just listen to your customers, build, listen to your customers, build. And like, you can do that forever. Like, I think you can do that forever, even at scale. But it's a very important piece of what, what we think about. And again, like version one doesn't have to be anything special. It's just talking to people. And mm-hmm. then again, kind of being that person in the scary movie that talks through the spirit, that, that has the spirits <laughs> talk through them and dedicating, if it can't be you as a founder, because you're too busy at some point, having somebody on the team that's always doing it. Because I think once you lose touch, touch of your customers, you really increase the risk of failure as a company. Well, I think even Airbnb, right? They got similar advice, like, and they went out and started talking mm-hmm. to potential yes. customers, even though they were sleeping on couches yes. to start off and said, hey, there could be something here. Yeah, they got even taking advice the photos and, themselves. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's absolutely taking right. The photo. And, that, and I think that was a big one because they got to meet the hosts. It's like they got to meet the hosts, take the photos, and yep. there's just that connection that, that matters, I think. As a founder, Corey, you've got, you've got a Tucker now. I personally think it's still important to to somehow create and maintain a connection to, to your end users. Agreed. Obviously, as a company gets bigger, that is less, there's less opportunity to do so. What advice do you have for business owners or other founders out there, perhaps, that might be listening? We've got a lot of business owners, even solopreneurs that listen to the show. How do you, like, is your advice just like call them or reach out and just like ask them to be, come onto a Zoom? Like, what yeah, advice you, do you have for folks? 
it's hard because it's not one size fits all. So in our case, uh, we don't have phones here. So this is kind of crazy to say. We don't have phones. So when we meet with people, it's all Google Meet or we have live chat and we have email and things like that. So that was an interesting table, like table setting that we had with these meetings. So we got the chance to see them and they got a chance to see us and see that we're real. And there's something about when like you and I right now are meeting over, over video and like, I can see your expressions. You can see mine. We can build yep. this kind of like eye bond that you have when you meet lock eyes with somebody. Yep. And I think that's a really, really, I think that's an important piece is cause it's, it's so hard. I mean, if you own a restaurant, you can do it. You can walk by every table. But if you run a company that is digital, you can't go and it's really hard to go to fly from Miami, Florida to Phoenix, Arizona to meet one. It's just very hard. Yeah, it's kinda, hard, it's kinda, hard and expensive and, yeah, and kind of weird. Your burn, you know? your burn rate kind of goes south <laughs> yeah. pretty quickly. Too. You probably don't have a lot of people that, that would agree to meet you. are like, hey, I'm going to fly from this other place to, to have coffee with you. I mean, yeah. some people appreciate it, but some people might be creeped out. But I think, again, one size doesn't fit all. But I do think there's value in the video call if they're open to it. Because I think that's the way that you build super fans. And I think, you know, this, this is what I'm building on here is that the reason why we do it and kind of the mission inside the mission of doing this, it's arduous. It's an arduous task. You're, you're having a lot of calls. It's very tiresome. And not everybody's friendly. Sometimes people are grumpy. It's human nature. But you get to find super fans. And they get, again, they get to know you. You get to know them. And there's this mm -hmm. thing that happens over video and it works. And I really believe in it. So like everything we do, when we think about building new products and we think about new features when we think about removing something adding something it's always about well what would the super fan like what would the super fans think mm -hmm. like and because those we're, we're really trying to multiply them it's like we're really trying to find these people that are emboldened by the brand excited about the brand excited mm -hmm. to invest they're going to tell 100 friends so you're really kind of hunting or or really searching for the super fans and that's the coin we i mean it's we didn't come up with a term but that's the term we use internally as kind of like the mission inside the mission of having these conversations how do you do identify a super fan? Like what are some of the things, and, and obviously it can be different business to mm -hmm. business, but like well, you're on the phone with someone, you're talking to them. How do you kind of say this person is a super fan? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a com. well, again, hard, qualitative, hard to quantify. I mean, with, with C modern CRMs, you can look at engagement, you can look at sure. various things, but a lot of it is a, for lack of a better word, a vibe. You can just see, again, back to the video calls, you can see it when somebody's excited to talk with you. Like, you can just see it. It's an obvious thing. But they'll be emailing you about other stuff. I mean, I'll give you a great example, and I think you'll appreciate this. We're very fortunate, but also unfortunate, that usually when we launch properties, they sell out in minutes to hours. So when we launch a new property, they wow. sell out in usually a little less than 30 minutes in, in, in a lot of cases. And it's exciting, but it's also frustrating because you have people that they're on their lunch break, and if it launches, they don't get in. They've been yeah. waiting for that property in Joshua Tree or Big Bear or wherever, and they miss it and it's, it, it is disappointing, but it's fortunate, but unfortunate. But the point I wanted to make is we had a member, which is like a customer, what we call is like what our customer would be called that sent in a, a, a picture message. So he sent in a picture message to us and said, I'm bummed. I missed investing. I was hiking this morning and he took a selfie of him hiking on a mountain. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a super fan. Yeah. And those are the type, and it's like, and, and let's say his name is, is, is Jim. It's like, we're looking for 500 more gems. Like we, we we're looking for this. Those are our people. It's like, yeah. those are the kind of people that make us excited and who we're building it for. But that's an example of an identifiable trait of a super fan. Like he's, he's bummed that he didn't get a chance to invest. He sent us a selfie of him on a mountain. 
when he very well could have never i mean that's, that's yeah. it's it's so many extra steps and so many extra levels of friction he could have simply just not answered any of our stuff and that's so those are some of the things that we look for but it's again it's, it's easy it's hard to quantify but there's these certain traits in every every use case and every company has a different version of what a super fan is a restaurant somebody yeah. that comes in every sunday super fan you know, a restaurant that comes in every Sunday and then brings their family for every yep. birthday for every kid and every grandparent, super fan. Yep. It really varies by company and by situation. And do you bring the super fans in more regularly, whether that's like, hey, we've got some ideas we want to run by you? Like, do you, yes. how do you engage them with yes. that? Yes. I mean, we keep you do track the survey, of them. but is there another yeah. way to do that? We keep track of them. We keep track of them and we reach out to them a lot. We have open conversations with them on a, on a either weekly or monthly basis. We do special things for super fans. So we'll, we don't tell them that's coming, but we'll send them like a hoodie. Like you see, I've got a bunch of here swag on if you're watching yeah. this. Like I've got a bunch of here swag on myself. And like we send them a hoodie. We don't really tell them it's coming. It just kind of shows up. Like cool. we do these special things to let them know that we, like we we're thinking about them. And, it, and again, it's hard to systematize, but it's an important thing to think about. So as a founder, in my opinion, like even if you can't build a perfect system around it, yeah. I don't think it's possible because there's because my use case won't work for another company and their use case probably won't work for another company. So it's an important piece of, of how we think about building product, but then also when building product, which of our customers were most interested in hearing from their feedback. Very cool. We know when we met, I guess maybe almost, I don't know, six weeks ago or so, yeah, yeah. the first time. I, when I got off the phone with you, I, I think a lot about Web3 and, and Metaverse. I was like, this would be cool if you guys did that, by the way. You don't have to answer that on the show. Don't answer that on the show. <laughs> but if you think about sort of like how expensive even Metaverse properties have become, mm -hmm. the investment there, I don't know if Reggae Plus would cover Metaverse, but like, uh, you never know. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think... I think a reward, I think the future of reward systems, like I don't know if you have the Starbucks app, but it's a, sure. it's an awesome reward system. Little stars are great and they give you these extra little bonuses and things yeah. like that. I think the future of reward systems is, is Web3. Like I think it's obvious that that's the future there. And the reason why I say that is with securities, there's this tough like black and white in certain mm -hmm. scenarios and then other scenarios not so black and white. So it's very hard. We took the we want to be buttoned up. We want to be legal from day one path. And the challenge is, is that it's hard to depart off of that because of how much effort, money, time, et cetera, goes into it. Yeah. So I'm not ruling out Web3, but I think it's so cool. Like I own a couple NFTs. I, I, I'm a big fan of a lot of it. And it'd be, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you, I didn't think about it. I'm like, how could it be woven into yeah. here? But it's a, it's a challenge with here because we work so closely with the SEC and there's been so much undefined in regards to what's okay and what's not okay. But I definitely think about it. I'm with you. I'm a fan of it too. Yeah. Very, very cool. I, by the way, I never asked you, how did you come up with the name here.com? Oh man. Okay. This is going to be fun. So <laughs> I've never told this story before. So really? I've never All told right, the story on a microphone break, before. Break I've told it to here. the That's team. Awesome. I've never told it to the team, but so we used to be called something else. I'm not going to mention it. You could probably dig around the internet and find it, but we used to be called something else when we first started working on the project very early. So like early 2021, we had like a holding name and we were trying to get the trademark for it and we just couldn't get the trademark for it. Too many issues, too many challenges, really couldn't figure it out. And I remember our trademark lawyer saying, you're going to have to come up with a name in like 72 hours. Like this name's not going to work. You have to come up with a name in like 72 hours because we needed to file a there was just a lot of moving parts and we needed to come up with a new name pretty quickly. And 
I, I live very close to the beach. So I live in Maradon, Florida, which is very close to Cocoa Beach, Florida, if you know where that is. And I went out and walked on the beach at night. And I had a couple names that we were thinking about, I was thinking about, and I was like, here is the name. Like, that's the name. And, and I, but I had to, I was on a crazy crunch. And then we had to find a domain. I mean, here.com is an impossible domain to acquire. Huh. So the next step after you have that is then finding the domain. And I work with a, a great domain broker, his name's Slade, shout out Slade. And he helped us find here.co. And we were able to acquire, I mean, it was like from start to finish, it was a week. And then I actually designed the logo myself. So it was like fast. It was, I mean, it was fast, fast. We had to move incredibly fast. We had a lot of moving parts to make that possible. But Holy cow. Yeah, it was a bit of soul searching because the old name, I was, I was married. I like loved the old name. And, but we just couldn't, we couldn't. I mean, it, that's the hard thing about naming a company is it's more than just the name. You've got, can you get the domain? Can you get the SEO? Yep. Can, yep. is it legal? Meaning like, is there trademark issues? Like it's, it's very tough. Well, I think it's a very cool name. Thank particularly you. because like you're investing here, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, there's a spot in the world that you are yeah. now an owner of a piece of it. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a perfect it, name. Well, and the tough thing about naming a company is that we're, we, we arrive at the nexus of FinTech, real estate and travel. And the challenge is, is that people are staying in here properties. So we couldn't call ourselves short-term rental investment.com <laughs> yeah. and, but because then it's, you know what I mean? Or whatever the, the name, that's a lazy name, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like we could, yeah. we had to come up with a name that could speak to both investors, but also guests Yeah, because at, at the end of the day, there's going to be hundreds or thousands of these properties and people are going to experience the brand. And it's like, and what's funny is I, the reason how we came up with the name, I was like, well, there's going to be a doormat on every property. And it's like, what's printed on the doormat when they walk up? And I'm like, how cool would it be if you walked up on the doormat, you walk in, you go to like jingle your keys or grab your phone, you look down and it says the word here. Yep. And it's just cool. So, that is very but, cool. but it's funny because now all of our properties have a doormat with the here logo on them at the front door. So That's awesome. it's just fun. It's fun, it's fun to build. That. That's an awesome yeah. story, man. I'm always inspired by founder stories and particularly how they come up with the name because obviously there's a deep connection to that, mm -hmm. right? But number two is like, they always, they vary so much. Sure. Thanks for sharing that, by the way. I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Hey, I ask each guest, and I told you, I, I mentioned I would do this, but I ask each, yeah. each guest to ask a question of my next guest. And the question from my previous guest for you, there are a lot of factors that are going to impact businesses, large or small. What plans do you have or how do you think about lowering your cost of acquisition? That's an interesting question. When we think about, we live in a really tough zone with here because we can't directly solicit securities through mm -hmm. traditional channels because of issues around disclosure. It's very hard to disclose in, in advertisements, specifically print or static image. So we're, we're, we live in a really tough world. So it's, it's hard because we can't optimize for somebody making an investment. We have to optimize for somebody signing up. So the things that we think about a lot, or I should say, I'm the quasi CMO here currently, but we don't have a marketing. We, I am the marketing team currently. I'm like Elon Musk's version of he, they have no PR team and it's just him, <laughs> except I'm the, I'm the CMO. I'm, I got, we got no marketing team. It's basically just me trying to lead it. And one of the things we think a lot about is taking control or ownership of how we acquire customers. So a traditional channels like Google and Facebook and even mm -hmm. print and 
TV, they're great, they're tried and true, but the challenge is you don't really control the, inf the inflating costs, specifically Google Ads, Facebook. I mean, historically, they go up and down based on time of year, et cetera. Yep. And we've really, really have found our stride in influencer marketing, and it's, it's something we think very highly of, specifically YouTube. Um, it's a slower burn. You're kind of fishing for a hit in a way. Like right. you could, we, and we work with partners for the long term on YouTube. But it's something that we think a lot about. But in regards to driving the cost down, you just have to be very sensitive about making changes to the site, mm -hmm. specifically pre-signup. So the site that you see here is largely the same copy, the same format, and the same messaging as when I launched the site a year and a half ago on a crappy Squarespace site. It's a different design now, but it's the same. It's almost identical format where UX, you name it, it's very, very similar. And it's because we found really great conversion early. And now I'm almost, not scared is probably not the word, but I'm almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What's it, what, what's it where you're, you're uh, anyways, I'm, I forget the word, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the word's um, not important. You have a feeling. Yes, it, it makes yes, you uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, uh, superstitious. That's the word I'm looking for. I'm superstitious of making changes to the site because I think, well, specifically at our stage, if you're twisting too many, like if you're testing a lot of different mm -hmm. channels, in, affiliate, influencer marketing, uh, traditional paid search, British, print media, et cetera, if you're twisting the knobs in the site too, specifically pre-signup, like pre-conversion, yeah. it's hard to get data on if these channels are working. So right now what we do is we measure these channels against each other, meaning acquisition channels, without messing with the site mm -hmm. so that we can understand customer acquisition across, across channels and, and lifetime value across channels. And then once we've got, and again, we've been rolling out new tests in, in different channels for the last six months. Once we have kind of a stable of these different channels, yep. uh, acquisition channels, then we can start to tweak the site, if that makes yep. sense. Sorry yep. for that. So I start with that if there's a little bump, but then we have to, then we could tweak the site. So again, it, I, I'm not necessarily sure that it's actually the smart decision, but it's one of the natures of being a CEO without a marketing team. You have to be careful about what dials you're changing because you don't actually get to learn if you're doing too much, specifically in driving customer acquisition costs down, which is something we think a lot about. I oh, mean, that's an amazing answer. There were so much learning and goodness in that like minute and a half or whatever we just spent on that. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Hey, I'm going to turn the tables to you, Corey. What question do you have for my next guest? Okay. So this is going to be an interesting one. This actually, I mean, it kind of has to do with work, but kind of fun as well. So if you could live and work remotely anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? So that's the question. Very cool question. I'm thinking about my answer right now. I wonder Can you give be. me your answer? Are you allowed to, are, is this how it works? Are you allowed to give me your answer on the... I'll um, give you my... I've never done okay. this, but I'll give you my answer. Yeah. It'd probably be like Mykonos, Greece. Very One, cool. I'm Greek. I could speak the language. So that I've got some... Yeah. You know, there's that. Number two, it's cheap living. Mm -hmm. You, I mean, for like a 2000 bucks a month, you can live high on the hog, frankly. Right. And I mean, how picturesque and beautiful and you're down by the ocean all day. Agreed. Right. Yeah, very, um, very cool. I think that might be my spot. Nice. Well, now it's official. So now, if if the if the tides turn for you and you get to you get to live and work anywhere, that's where you're going. I'm just hoping not that I really play the lottery, but like I hope I just win a billion dollars and then I can just go buy a big <laughs> house there and never have to work again. Agreed. That, that's awesome. Hey, you said you get inspiration on the beach. At least you came up with the company name there. Like, where do you go? Like, what fills your tires? Like, where do you go for inspiration, man? I. 
So I read a lot. So I read a lot. I'm sure you see some books in the background. That's where I go to be brought back up. It's where I go to build. It's where I go to expand my mind. When I've came up with the idea for here, our colors are black and white. And it's because I was largely depressed when I was Mm. thinking about the idea I was going through divorce, my company was failing, et cetera. But the reason why I bring this up books, bring books up is I really got into stoicism and specifically a book called The Practicing Stoic, which is an incredible book. And it really centered me to become re-motivated, reinvigorated. And yeah, I mean, that's where I generally go to, uh, to find inspiration, to find new ideas and to recenter myself. Love that. Great answer. By the way, it's a great book. It's one of my favorite books. And I'm a, oh, you I, have The Practicing Stoic. Yeah. And I'm like I, a, I a, a, uh, a staunch, a, yeah, yeah. I'm a staunch, staunch Stoic. I mean, it's oh, like, nice. just control think, what you can. Just, I, just stay focused. I think it's the best book on Stoicism. I mean, I mean, obviously... I think it's the best book on stoicism. Yeah. I think it's the less, there's no fluff. I mean, there's he not. doesn't, he doesn't add anything new. It's an incredible book. I mean, it's just organizing thoughts based on category and letting you infer the information. Yeah. It's a great book. I always, that's my favorite. I mean, my favorite book I always go back to. Hey, Corey, this has been a great, great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. For our listeners again, here, H-E-R-E dot co, C-O dot C-O. Go check out sort of the platform. I am, again, I'm looking at it as, a, again, this is not an advertisement. Obviously, I have no investment in, in the company. But again, I've been looking at it as a way just to ver- diversify my portfolio. And I think that we're, my family and I, we're beach people. We're like vacation rental folks. I've been burned by Airbnb, although I do love them as well. But really cool idea. And be cool just to say like, hey, I own these pieces of these places and just be able to, to say that and do that. But also, Great. obviously, it's nice from a passive income perspective too. Corey, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been wonderful to have you on and get to know you a little bit. Great. Thank you so much, Bill. It's great to, great to hang out today. All right, everybody. Another great show. We're out. Talk to you thanks soon, everyone. Thanks for listening to Be Customer-Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out. We're out.